Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and host, Amy Board, and today I am joined by Joshua Sterling Bragg. Hey, that's me. I'm that Patrick is today. You. you are Patrick today, but you're even more than Patrick. You're Joshua Sterling Bragg. Yes, and I'm co-host of the PV Pod, Stories from the Marrow. We love that. Yeah. You also uh, were a segment host for Let's Talk for all those years. I did. Should we just go down the full list? I can pull up my IMDb here. Actually, that's great. <laughs> and no, y'all, Patrick is out today, but you're going to hear from him a little bit later because we have an incredible show. Roctavian, the Biomarin produced gene therapy for hemophilia A is here. After a long and windy road, it has been approved by the FDA. Huge news, long anticipated. So of course, Patrick and I got on a call to discuss. That's coming up. Safe One Life Executive Director Chris Bombardier and writer-comedian Drew Johnston join us to discuss the launch of the Final Summit Season 2. Episode one is live. Um, So anyway, they're going to join me to discuss season two, which is going to be wonderful. And nurse practitioner Maya Bloomberg is back this time with five tips for having a fun and safe summer with a bleeding disorder. We've got all that and more on this episode. Welcome to Bloodstream. Welcome to Bloodstream. You did that so great. Yeah, thanks. It's like you always knew how to do it. It's like Patrick's always never left. Y'all, you can share episodes of Bloodstream and subscribe to episodes of Bloodstream wherever you get your podcasts, also on Facebook, which is fantastic. And listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. That is right. Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds, and they are dedicated more than ever in their effort to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com one more time. For all the folks in the back, that is bleedingdisorders.com for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream podcast. Both of us would just like to say... Thanks, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. Wow, thank you, Takeda. Joshua, I'm I'm <laughs> psyched to have you here. Thank you for being here on the Bloodstream Podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'm always happy to be here sitting in the hot seat. I never know what to do, <laughs> but I like hearing your voice in my ears. That's fantastic. That's why I listen. I know. And I'm here listening in person. Um, we're just going to do uh, a little bit of back and forth, but I want to kind of hear about your life and this PV pod um, that you are hosting. Bloodstream actually um, produces a wide range of, bl- of podcasts for bleeding disorders, and you have a wonderful, wonderful show. Um, tell me a little bit about it and what it's been like working for the PV community. It's been great. Um, I'm I'm learning a lot. I'm kind of the person who's reacting to what we're learning, uh, which is kind of nice. Kay Vermeil does the bulk of the work. She writes the scripts and interviews the people. And uh, I come along to ask a lot of questions that I think maybe our listeners might be asking at home while they're listening to these incredible people tell their stories and share about building community and creating resources and finding resources so that you don't feel alone. And I think that's true of like all the work that we do here. So it feels like a really natural fit to have that show in the bloodstream uh, media. That is so cool. That's so cool. Make sure to check it out, everybody. PV Pod Stories from the Marrow. It's on bloodstreammedia.com. Um, let's get to it, everybody. Roctavian is approved. Let's get on the phone with Patrick James Lynch because, shocker, he's got a lot to say. 
Well, hi, PJL. Hi, Amy Borg. Here you are on the on the phone. <laughs> yeah, we have those still on the phone, living living it up. Uh, we've got big old big old news that we had to talk about. I mean, we just couldn't not not talk about. So. Let's like jump right in. How are you feeling? What's happening? Give me all the things. Yeah, I'm feeling good. I was not anticipating being with you today, obviously. Uh, but given the news, um, I'm sorry I'm not there in person, but this is the next best thing. Uh, look, we've been anticipating this now for literally decades. Uh, and after an initial rejection in 2020 and a review delay earlier this year by Marin's Roctavian, for a gene therapy for severe hemophilia A has now been approved by the FDA. It is now a commercially available treatment option in the United States of America. It joins Hemogenics from CSL Bearing for hemophilia B in giving us the ability to now say that if you have severe hemophilia A or B in the United States of America, gene therapy is an option for you. This is a historic time. However, gene therapy may evolve from here, whatever it may mean in the long run for people with hemophilia, for people in general. At this particular moment, we are living through history. Roctavian is here. It's a lot. How do you personally feel? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, I've been thinking about that the last few days you know it's been maybe a week or so since the, the the announcement at the end of june um i you know i've shared the story before about being a kid and getting newspaper clippings about gene therapy to cure hemophilia by 1999 and now we're here so this has been a part of my consciousness for a very long time but i have to say personally it doesn't do a whole lot for me personally, as someone who is very well managed on an existing treatment for hemophilia, uh, a treatment that doesn't come with it as many known unknowns as even the commercially available gene therapy for hemophilia A does. So for me, going through the risk-benefit analysis and the decision tree of is gene therapy right for me? I mean, it's only been available for <laughs> like a week, so it's... Uh, but. Is it right for me? The answer for me is not right now. And I've kind of known that for a while. So it doesn't change anything for me. It doesn't change how I'm feeling personally. It doesn't do anything for me personally. What it does is the advocate side of me, the storyteller, the kid who's been anticipating a moment in history for decades, that part of me recognizes that this is really significant and that there are hundreds, if not thousands of people whose lives will be changed in the next 12 months because of this decision. So I'm really excited for the community. Personally, doesn't have the same level of impact and I wasn't expecting it to. That's not a disappointment. That's just the story. Right. Have you, uh, do you have a sense of the community? It's going to be actually, you know, we, we're all going to be together here at the Bleeding Disorder Conference in DC here in, in August. I'm sure this will... Uh, be a continued through line, but is there any, what, what are you feeling from the community from this? Was there any ripple or? It's hard to say. I, I don't know. It's hard to say. I think to your point, we're going to be in the best environment for that next month in August at the NHFBDC. So let's, let's hold 
you know, given kind of community pulse checks until that event has come and gone. On the next episode, you are going to hear listeners from uh, Len Valentino, the now outgoing uh, CEO and president of the National Hemophilia Foundation. Uh, Dr. Valentino is coming on to talk about the rebranding that NHF is going through, which is big news of an entirely other sort. I am going to ask him in the interview, which is taking place tomorrow, to speak about this a little bit too. So, uh, let's come back to community stuff and we'll hear from Len on the next episode. I think, you know, uh, you know, just between you and me, I think it's going to be really, well, I guess not between you and me. I guess you and me and the listeners. You, me, and the millions, and the millions. of subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see how our system here in the United States of um, reimbursement, uh, insurance reimbursement, uh, access to something like this is going to shake out. I I am so out of those circles to even know, you know, what yeah. is being done. I do know that, you know, hemophilia from a, uh, you know, chronic disease standpoint has one of the first gene therapies. So really, truly, we're going to be pioneers in this new world of um, reimbursement. But it's going to be very interesting. I think the pricing is interesting um, with these two gene therapies, hemogenics, of course, for heme B and Rectavian for hemophilia A. Um, what are your thoughts on sure. reimbursement or, um, you know, access to this? You know, it's interesting. There was, uh, I read in Fierce Pharma that during a Biomarin call um, to make this announcement, uh, that there's also discussion about an outcomes based warranty program. The warranty is going to reimburse government and commercial payers up to the full cost if Roctavian doesn't live up to its treatment expectations, which is very interesting and, and, and like nuanced and great. Wait, yeah, wait, wait. Space. Say that again. Biomarin is setting up a outcomes-based warranty program that will reimburse government and commercial payers up to the full cost of Roctavian if Roctavian does not live up to its treatment expectations and partial reimbursement will be granted if an individual loses response to the therapy in the first four years after dosing. So we've talked about this from an efficacy and a durability standpoint. Wait a minute, if we're seeing factor expression drop off after a certain period of time and the and the the trend line's going down, like what does that mean for the long-term efficacy of this thing? How are we going to be asking payers to pay for a curative treatment, a one and done treatment, if in fact that isn't what happens? Well, this from a payment perspective, not from a patient outcomes perspective, but from a payment perspective seems to address that, this outcomes-based warranty program, which I think is a pretty cool precedent that is being set for a drug that does, at wholesale acquisition, cost $2.9 million. And just by contrast, Hemogenics is currently priced at $3.5 million per dose. So these are extremely expensive medications. Yeah. Um, so the FDA has also approved a companion diagnostic that is called the AAV5 Detect CDX. What the heck is that? And why do I have to know about that, Patrick? Here's what it is, and here's why I need to know about it. As we've discussed on this podcast before, if you have, say, hemophilia A, like I do, unlike previous medications where, unless you had an inhibitor, an immune response to the medication, if it was approved for hemophilia A, anybody with severe hemophilia A could take said medication. Gene therapy doesn't work that way. 
the delivery system for the gene therapeutic is an adeno-associated virus, an AAV, adeno-associated virus, in particular, the one that is labeled number five. So AAV5. If you as a human produce antibodies against AAV5, which could be for any number of reasons in the world, you are ineligible for gene therapy. So before going to the nth degree to do everything in prep outside of actually getting the intravenous infusion of a gene therapeutic, if at that point you realize that, oh, by the way, you have uh, antibodies against AAV, you can't get this, that would be devastating. So as we've talked about with various guests, at some point in the consideration of gene therapy for hemophilia, there's a new conversation that has to take place as part of shared decision-making with a patient and a physician, and that is around AAV5 antibodies. I don't care at all about AAV antibodies if I'm taking Hemlibra or a factor replacement therapy. It does not matter. It is paramount with gene therapy. So the FDA approved in conjunction with the Roctavian approval this test that will allow us to test people's AAV5 levels. So that that's that's an important thing that I think can get lost in the headlines, but is, is important to underscore. We've also had other big news recently when it comes to the, the larger treatment pipeline, and I just want to kind of zoom out a little bit. So Pfizer announced in the last couple of weeks that both the FDA here in the U.S. and the EMA in Europe have accepted their application for their hemophilia B gene therapy. I think it's called Benagene 2. Um, they have completed a phase three study. So that is very far along. They've completed a phase three study and they've now submitted an application to the FDA and EMA, meaning there is already about to be in the coming months, a second gene therapy for hemophilia B that is made available. Altuvio, a longer lasting factor medication from Sanofi was just recently approved by the FDA. This is an intravenous infusion of factor uh, with a half-life that is much more commiserate to, as a guy with hemophilia A, what we were hoping for once upon a time when we heard about extended half-life and we heard, wow, heme B, maybe once a week. And he may, it was like, wait, how much more? Oh, that's not that much better. Altuvio's technology is finally bringing the heme extended half-life product uh, to essentially the same place as the heme B product. And we're going to be hearing more about the Tusaran, which we've had most recently Dr. Yai Young on the Bulletstream podcast to talk about. So I'm just running down this hit list, Amy, not to be just like droning on and on about different therapies. But, you know, yes, this has been a long-awaited moment. Hemophilia A gene therapy is approved in the U.S. Mm. Great, exciting. But that larger context of what does it mean? It won't be made available for everybody. There are going to be continued iterations on gene therapy. There's a reason that there's an outcomes-based warranty program being set up on the financial side of things. Frankly, if the data was as exemplary as we would all like it to be, that would not be necessary. If it was irrefutable that you take this thing one and done, boom, hemophilia is now no longer going to be a part of your lived experience, we wouldn't need to set up an outcomes-based warranty program before it's even launched. So there's reasons to pause, to survey the greater landscape, to understand what's just come about, what's coming next, what's happening over here. This is a big moment, but it's not the moment So we have to continue to stay tuned. And again, we'll have Dr. Len Valentino. He'll give some good insights on the next episode. Amy and I and the greater team will be at NHF BDC in August. No doubt this is going to be a huge topic of conversation there. So continue to stay engaged. And if you are curious personally, to really boil this down to the listeners and caregivers out there, if you are personally curious, okay, what does this mean for me 
living in Michigan or living in South Dakota or living in Alabama, can I now get gene therapy? The answer is it's commercially available. So start the conversations, talk with your treatment center, talk with your social worker, talk with your insurance provider, talk with your doctor. It's annoying. It's a lot of conversations. We know how this works when you live with a rare disease in the house. But this is an exciting moment for all of us. Just make sure you're doing what you need to do to determine what it actually means for you. Couldn't have said it any better. This it's very exciting. Said it shorter. I no, <laughs> I was actually <laughs> going to say what you just said there at the end. So this is this is fantastic. You can hang up now. No, I this is this <laughs> is really it really exciting. And it is it, it is a daunting it is a daunting thought of like w- what if I research things or trying to get something that is new you know it is going to be a daunting thing i think from an access reimbursement um perspective in the beginning and at the same time what a phenomenal time where the world of hemophilia a and b truly has a choice about how they would like to treat and manage their hemophilia in order to do the things that they want to do. And it's just really, really, really exciting. So roll up your sleeves. Um, We'd love to hear your stories and your back and forth. This is such an important time. I think this decision-making process here in the next few years is so fascinating to me. So please reach out to us, uh, Patrick and myself. And yeah, we would, we would love to, capture some of these stories and it's really exciting and stay tuned to bloodstream because we'll you know we always we always talk about the new cool things Amy board thanks for finding a way to connect us today in spite of the fact that i'm not there with you thanks for holding down the fort and i look forward to seeing you in the studio for the next one of these. you bet you bet thanks pgl oh that will be an ongoing conversation about roctavian and gene therapy for hemophilia a stay tuned uh we're gonna keep keep discussing it here on bloodstream now it's time for maya bloomberg the heme np to give us some tips for a fun and safe summer with a bleeding disorder take it away maya it's officially summertime so let's dive in with five tips to have not only a fun but a safe summer living with a bleeding disorder I always say that failing to plan is planning to fail. So tip number one is to plan ahead and communicate with your healthcare providers. You want to discuss your travel plans, what activities you had in mind, make sure you have your factor and other medications available. We can provide guidance. So maybe if you're doing a certain high intensity activity, we might recommend wearing a helmet or having pads. We can connect you with local healthcare providers and most important, have an emergency plan in place in case a problem arises. You might even benefit from having travel insurance as well. Second tip, pack on necessary supplies. You want to bring factor on hand in case for any bleeds or just for prophylaxis to make sure you have your factor, your butterflies, your ancillary supplies, and check the storage because there's a good chance you're going to need a cooler bag. And I always recommend pack extra of everything because is it just me, but every single flight is getting canceled or delayed. So you want extra supplies for all of your factor and your bleed management, and don't forget some first aid stuff as well. Third tip, don't forget your SPF and stay hydrated. Even if it's a cloudy day or you have darker skin, SPF is essential. A sunburn is not only painful, but it can actually trigger a bleeding episode. So you wanna make sure you reapply at least every two hours. The sun is extremely dehydrating and heat stroke is real. So making sure you keep up with your fluid intake, especially when you're outside and the heat is extremely important. And if you're drinking alcohol outside, you wanna be very smart and make sure you're alternating an alcoholic beverage with fluids. Tip number four, you wanna rest and pace yourself. 
If you have hemophilic arthropathy or joint disease, listen to your body and take breaks as needed. You want to avoid overexerting yourself since we know this can trigger a breakthrough bleed even if you're compliant with your prophylaxis regimen. You want to treat all bleeds promptly and don't forget the power of RICE. That stands for rest, ice, compress, and elevate. Tip five, educate someone around you. Make sure that at least one person knows about your bleeding disorder, whether it's your family, friend, a counselor, or even the lifeguard. Let them know the different signs and symptoms that you might have and how they can best assist you. I also recommend getting a diagnosis or a standard of care letter, which outlines what exactly your diagnosis is and what to do in the events of a major or a minor bleeding episode. By being prepared and taking the necessary precautions, you'll be on track to having an awesome summer while minimizing the potential risks. So stay safe, have fun, and make some lasting memories. As always, thank you, Maya. Absolutely wonderful. Let's get to our interview with Chris Bombardier and Drew Johnston. Phenomenal, phenomenal stuff coming up on season two of The Final Summit. So let's listen in. The next segment is brought to you by Genentech. Genentech is always aiming to make navigating hemophilia less challenging for you. One way they do this is providing real stories from real people in the hemophilia community. To hear the experiences of other people living with hemophilia A, please visit www.helpwithhemophilia.com. Well, hello, everyone. I am here with Frequent Bloodstream guests and just all around wonderful dudes, Chris Bombardier and Drew Johnson, who are knee deep in, I guess, the editing process of season two of Final Summit or... It's all done. Anyway, congrats on season two. Um, I'm so excited to have you here. And I guess to, um, I don't know, to start a little bit, what, tell me a little bit, Chris, from your perspective, why season two was important, how it has, you know, kind of like caught the coattails of season one. Yeah, I think uh, season one of Final Summit was really fun to produce um, because it was getting to highlight some of the stories that weren't in the documentary Bombardier Blood and talked about, you know, the other mountains that I climbed that didn't get highlighted so much in the movie. Um, but also connecting it to the stories of the people and, and, and kind of a bit of the mission of Save One Life. But, you know, talking about doing a second season of this, you know, we really wanted to dive into what was happening after the Seven Summits, what happened after mm-hmm. the climbs and what's been going on since that in in my life. Um, and more importantly, kind of connecting it to Save One Life's story and mission a little bit more. So what I really love about the second season is diving really kind of in deep about what we're doing around the world. Some of the stories that have really opened my eyes um, throughout my journeys, journey, you know, um, with, you know, bleeding disorders in developing countries. So it's, it's really fun to kind of hopefully share these interesting and inspiring stories with folks and, and get them to be able to understand kind of what that perspective looks like around the world. That's so great. Um, Drew, from your perspective, what was the process like? Um, Take us like a little bit, you know, behind the curtain of Oz a little bit. What was, what was it like? Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, you know, this one was, this season was um, a little different since like with the final summit, uh, the first season, we had very distinct episodes of like, one mountain, one episode, you know, that's a very, uh, that's, that sounds like a song from the sound of music, but one, one's one mountain, one episode is, uh, (laughs) was the way that season one worked. And then season two was more, you know, like a little more free form. It was a little bit more like, what are the big topics that we want to talk about? What are the metaphorical mountains that we want to climb each episode? And, um, I'd say one of the other big things with season two, that's 
different was, you know, season one was a lot about the mountains, but also getting to know Chris. Um, season two was just a lot more uh, holistic and global, I feel like. We, we talked to a lot of people around the globe who uh, had stories to tell of their own, and it's a lot more interview-focused than um, storytelling-focused. There's still obviously stories in there, but, like, we really wanted to hear other people's stories in this. And um, I think that was kind of largely how we would edit these episodes. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was writing towards was, you know, let's talk about the topics that are brought up and how we can address these topics um, rather than let's figure out a way to tell Chris's story. And I, so that was kind of a, a different way of getting into it. Um, but it, it was very fun. Chris is a great interviewer, so it was easy to edit around those. And uh yeah, he's also he's 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 great to write with. He's he's uh, very easy to write with and a very cool dude. So it's all good. He's okay. <laughs> to, to uh, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Kidding. JK. JK. <laughs> no, very fair. And I have to say, like Drew's Drew's amazing because uh, I get just like kind of dump the stories onto the page, and he actually makes them sound good. So <laughs> I was really thankful to work with Drew again on this, which is great. Tell me a little bit about that process. Um, you mentioned it a little, like dumping stories on the page, and then. And Drew, you wrote, tell me about like the actual, this, this show is so beautifully written and produced and, um, it's, it's really lovely. Um, how do you do it? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think for this season, like, like Drew was mentioning it, it, it was a little different cause we were trying to, you know, talk about specific, you know, topics for each episode and we kind of had a game plan of what those look like, but also trying to find stories from my travels that kind of fit into that narrative really nicely that mm. highlighted specific parts of that story, um, which w was mostly easy to find those stories. Um, cause I've had a lot of cool experiences, you know, in my life, which I'm really lucky to have, but I would just literally kind of do a brain dump. I would just sit there and write everything I could remember about that story. I didn't try and like polish it super well because uh, it was just more about getting the details on the page. And then Drew really crafted it into a nice story that had, um, you know, elements that would bring kind of the visual nature to it, to it for people, since it is an audio, um, you know, format. Um, and that's something I just I don't have the, the you know, knowledge for is how do you write it to, to really, you know, sound good. And I felt like Drew just kind of took it from there and he could probably talk more about that piece of it. <laughs> well, I mean, Chris, you're a great writer. I mean, your stories are great. So it's a lot easier to write when there's actual substance there. Like that, I feel like when there's actually like, you know, like if I was ever to, to ghostwrite something for, you know, someone who has absolutely no stories and said, make this interesting, I don't know what the hell I would do, but you actually have interesting stories. So that's like very good. <laughs> um, the, the weird thing about it is, is like when you're, so one of the things about this is like trying to craft uh an actual like arc in these in these stories because what we're talking about in this uh in this season especially is you know a lot more larger concepts things like poverty uh when it comes to healthcare and women's health uh, and the inequalities there and um education like the value of education and like what I wanted to do from the writing perspective is take um the the stories and the thoughts that Chris had and kind of figure out like how can we make an arc to this? Like, how can we make it feel like we're growing and we're learning and we're revealing things throughout that make it still sound like um, an episode of a podcast or an episode of TV, an episode of storytelling rather than just telling, you know, 
um, a few random stories here and there. So, you know, for instance, for the education episode, a lot of that education episode, I believe it's episode three, is about like how it's so important for um, young people who are suffering from bleeding disorders or hemophilia in, um, you know, uh, uh, Africa or um, you know, smaller nations that don't have the access to health that we do in the United States, like how important it is for them to find access to education to break out of that system so they don't have to go to manual labor and do jobs that are physically painful. And that's how we started. But then it kind of went and we started then exploring what else does education mean? And a lot of that is we talked to someone who uh, went back to school to become a nurse. And we talked about Chris going back to school to like learn about global health and like these are like things that are, you know, expansive beyond just that first story. And that was kind of what I wanted to find as a, uh, as the writer was like, figure out, okay, cool. Like this is a great way in now. How can we expand that and explore it at a lot of different angles and also tell the story that Chris wants to tell, um, while making it a, a whole piece rather than a bunch of, uh, uh, scattered stories. Mm. You uh, mentioned uh, some interviews. Um, Chris, I guess, question to you. Who was who surprised you in terms of the interviews and uh, people that you got to speak with? What what stood out? Uh, well, it's always great to like we, we interviewed a few of our program partners, uh, you know, from around the world. You know, Maureen Maruka in Kenya, Agnes Kisaki in, in Uganda. You know, obviously they're wonderful to speak to, but we actually also reached outside of the bleeding disorder community on a few instances to to try and get um, a wider perspective. So we we interviewed a woman named Maya Dusenberry who wrote a book called Doing Harm, which really talks about uh, inequities in women's health. Um, you know, and not just in the bleeding disorder space, but in general in the in the health system, which was wonderful. And then. Uh, I'm blanking on his name right now, which is a bummer, but uh, a, a professor from Northwestern, uh, his name's, uh, I'm totally Carlos, I can't remember his last name, but he uh, uh, spoke about, you know, social determinants of health and how, um, you know, poverty, um, access to clean water, you know, sanitation, access to education, all of those things are involved in our health health system. Um, and it's way more expansive than what we think of just as like hospitals and medical facilities. So I'm really excited for people to hear those interviews and kind of get that wider perspective of from, you know, outside the bleeding disorder community too, which is exciting. That's great. Drew, what about you? What did, uh, what was something that you will take away from this experience? You know, uh, I mean, you know, play, the, the thing about working on this show is, you know, I'm someone who doesn't have a bleeding disorder and, uh, I only became aware really when I became friends with Patrick, uh, you know, years ago on, um, on our web series. Uh, and so like there is so many like things that I'm like learning more and more every day. And I thought I learned a lot from stop the bleeding where I was kind of like, great, I'm now an expert at hemophilia and I'm not. Um, I mean, there is the, the, uh, the interview with, um, with Marine, especially when I first listened to it and I listened to just like how so many women that she had met actually had hemophilia or a bleeding disorder, but was completely not, um, 
Oh no, this is this is new baby brain. I'm completely forgetting a very normal word. Uh, uh, diagnose, diagnose. That's it. Um, uh, but they're uh, they are like that. All these women are like not diagnosed with bleeding disorders just because they're women. Because like it's traditionally yeah. seen as like a male disease yeah. was something that I had absolutely no idea about, mm-hmm. and it was like this fascinating thing to listen to her telling that story, and. In like she was even listening to that raw interview being like, oh, there's just a group of women all sharing this and they're all kind of discovering it in real time. And that's like a very fascinating thing, but also like tragic, but like something that like I I was really moved by and wanted to really emphasize that like we really need to not only make sure that women's health uh, for treatments is uh, equal to men's, but also just diagnoses like things like that, like breaking down some of those barriers and making sure that we all know um, that everyone can, everyone can have uh, these diseases and it's, it's not a a gendered thing. Um, Yeah. Chris, um, I've known you for a while. (laughs) Uh, And, You know, I feel like I was around you. I was like in your orbit when this calling of yours like became really alive within you. You know, Um, we kind of remember those initial conversations. And obviously that's what started um, that whole seven summits era of your life. But now coming to this point, um, the work that you've done, the degree that you have, the work with Save One Life, um, your ability to move and be and see, I think, in other areas of the world. How has your calling or your perspectives changed on what what is going on? What would what would make um, the world, I think, of chronic or rare disease better in in the global space? Oh man, that's that's a deep question. I like it. I know. Um, <laughs> It's been it's been fascinating for me, you know, um, when when I was first exposed, you know, to what it was like even living in a different country. um, It was very eye opening. You know, I think we're very kind of secluded in the United States in most aspects. And I know that there's obviously poverty and a lot of significant challenges in the United States. I don't want to discount that. Um, But there is also something to seeing like extreme poverty in in these in these, uh, you know, countries that I visited. And it's, it's eye-opening, you know, it, it, you can't help once you've seen it and like really experienced it. I think it's something that you can never go back. You can't ever kind of exist in the world in the same way, knowing that people, a lot of people around the world live in these conditions. And then you add the, the health aspect to it. Um, and just trying to imagine, you know, the struggles that I've had with my bleeding disorder, you know, were relatively easy compared to what they're trying to, you know, overcome. And so I think, you know, and we talk about it in the first episode of the podcast, which I'm really excited about. I think the biggest thing that we can all do to together to like make a difference and hopefully shift, um, you know, what healthcare looks like around the world is to just to agree that um, access to healthcare is a human right, you know, um, that people deserve access to medicines, they deserve access to care. Uh, if it exists, that that's if we can all agree on that, which I, I, I don't feel like that's a hard thing to agree on. Um, some people might want to, you know, challenge me on that and that's fine. They can. Um, but I, I think if we can all agree on that, that would be a tremendous step forward because with that lens on, um, I think the decisions get 
uh, become much easier on how to move forward and how to really bring change. Mm. So, well, I, 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 I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. And, um, you know, as your friend, uh, you know, it is, um, you know, very just inspiring to watch you continue um, to work in this space and uh, to find your voice more and more. And Drew, thank you for being a part of that. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's a cool thing. And yeah. Well, I'm very appreciative to be a part of it. And uh, Chris, I just want to say I absolutely do not agree with you. I think healthcare <gasps> should... Healthcare should only be uh, accessed by people who make an arbitrary amount of money in a year, and those are the people who should have access to health uh, care. Uh, it's a great American system. No, I, yes. I'm 100. This took a turn. This whole thing took a turn. I just switched all of a sudden, and I'm like, no, uh, no, I I can't agree more, and I think it's such a huge thing. Um, uh, and I'm very I'm very happy that we 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 get to talk about that. That like healthcare is a I believe is a human right. And I think it's like very important that everyone uh, gets access to this around the entire world. So it should awesome. not be determinate where you are yeah. born. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. Um, thanks y'all. This was really wonderful. Just to, uh, just because I'm a total sap, you guys are both dads, new dads. <laughs> How are you doing? How are the babes? Tell me about, tell me about the dadding. I'm gonna let Drew go first. He's the the, new the freshest dad. Fresh <laughs> dad. New dad. That, being a dad is great. I mean, uh, the, the Bruce is our baby's name, and little Bruce is doing really good. Uh, play a lot of Springsteen for him. Is he's. Uh, it's been very fun uh, getting to be a dad and getting to see him like start smiling and giggling at things. And um, yeah, I'm. I mean, it's. It's great. It's great. There's a I I talk a lot more about um about spit up vomit poop and pee <laughs> than I ever thought I would. Um it's become largely one of the big talking points in this household, but uh other than that, I you know what? I feel great. <laughs> yep. And that that's not going to stop for several years. So, okay. you know, it's going to be great. <laughs> can't wait. No, I I can't agree more though. Like uh it's fun. It's funny. I feel like every um, kind of developmental stage of Carter's life has been like my favorite. Um, it, it just keeps getting more fun and more fun. And, uh, you know, we, we took him on a canoeing trip on Saturday just for a couple hours on the canoe and the, his, his excitement over like seeing dragonflies fly around. I'm like, yeah, that is cool. That is, we should be excited about that. And <laughs> Um, you know, now he's like saying full sentences and we're having like full conversations, which is wild. I'm like, oh, I know exactly what you're saying, what you need. Like, uh, this is crazy. Um, so it, it's super fun. Um, yeah, you know, probably more special, more exciting than any of the mountain climbs for sure. <laughs> I can't wait personally to take him on some hikes. Like that's the thing that I'm excited for uh. is to, is to force my little boy to go on a hike with me. But <laughs> yes. I don't know. You gotta get one of those backpacks. At first oh, I got a backpack. He's just got to get his neck strength ready to be in, the, be in that backpack, Ooh, and it's still pretty hot out here, so we'll see. Yeah, but yeah. Uh. When it cools down, when it cools down in LA in a few months, you know, you know, he'll be neck strength. He'll be ready. It'll be great. I'll be taking him. Yeah, I'll be. We'll be climbing up. We'll be climbing to the Hollywood sign every day. <laughs> there you go. Bruce going to crush it in his little his little hat and his zinc on his nose. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, <laughs> Drew, Chris, thank you as always for coming and uh, uh, spending time with us here on Bloodstream. Listeners, to hear the final um, season two of the final summit, please check out bloodstreammedia.com. And of course, if you haven't, check out season one as well. It is wonderful. But thanks again to the two of you, and we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you. No matter the country, no matter the peak, there are some things that connect us all. We all breathe. We all dream. We all bleed. You see things differently when you're standing on top of the world. My name is Chris Bombardier, and in 2018, I became the first mountaineer with hemophilia to successfully climb the Seven Summits tallest mountain on each of the seven continents. But that was just the beginning of my journey. What I saw in my adventures, both from the mountaintops and in the surrounding villages, inspired and changed me. In the years since my climbs, I channeled my spirit and ambition towards a new frontier, advocacy and global healthcare through my work at Save One Life. In my new role, I've had tough and enlightening conversations all over the world with leaders, patients, and caregivers. Conversations that made me rethink what healthcare can mean and about my own personal journey navigating my bleeding disorder. It's time to bring those conversations to the world. From poverty to social stigmas, to education and the inequality of women's care, there's a lot to unpack when we talk about health and the quality of care. Global health is full of its own peaks and valleys. If there's anything I learned from climbing the seven summits, it's that there's always another mountain to climb. And if you take it one step at a time, you'd be amazed at what you can achieve. This is The Final Summit, Season 2, The World After the Mountains. Subscribe and listen to The Final Summit wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in for our first episode debuting on July 10th, 2023. The Final Summit is produced by Bloodstream Media and made possible by support from Genentech. Visit genentechhemophilia.com to take a look at how they are supporting the hemophilia community. Thank you, Drew, Chris, Maya, and our very own Patrick James Lynch, of course, for contributing to today's episode. And as always, thank you to Josh for jumping in and joining me in the host seat. I'm happy to do this literally anytime you want, but I travel a lot, so just try and schedule it in advance. All right, famous last words. I'm going to be co-hosting with Joshua Sterling Bragg all the time. All the time. Thank you, Kay, in the booth and everyone in production for making the summertime adjustments to this episode possible. Uh, reminder to you all listeners that this episode would not be possible without our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Thank you, Takeda. Visit bleedingdisorders.com. Amy, before we go, is there like an email or something I can use to get in touch with the show? Say if I have a suggestion to topics or guests or if I like to inquire about casting or storytelling opportunities, what should I or someone like me do? What a phenomenal, spontaneous question, Josh. And yeah, I just thought of it. I can give you an answer. You can email mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com, of course, to give us suggestions or inquire about casting and storytelling opportunities. Wow. Mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Great. I'll be sure to do that. <laughs> 
<laughs> In the meantime, listeners, subscribe if you haven't shared this episode with your network. And we are going to be back July 28th without going. Aw, NHF CEO Len Valentino, he's going to be joining Patrick. And you're not going to want to miss that one. And that, everybody, is all for this episode. I am your host, Amy Board. And I'm Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, take self-care of yourself, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. You know that I, I told that uh, I don't want to stay on parade, but I've bleeping want to stay on parade. This is the bad guy. <laughs>